Welcome to Important Not Important. My name is Quinn Emmett. And my name is Brian Colbert Kennedy. This is the podcast where we try to bend the motherfucking arc of history towards a more livable planet for you, for me, and everybody else. We're going to dive into a specific question affecting everyone on the planet right now. Uh, if it can kill us or make the future a hell of a lot cooler for everybody, uh, we are in. Our guests are scientists, doctors, engineers, politicians, astronauts, even a reverend. And we work together toward action steps that our listeners can take with their voice, their vote, and their dollar. This is your friendly reminder. You can send questions, thoughts, uh, and feedback to us on Twitter at ImportantNotImp, or you can email us at funtalk at importantnotimportant.com. And you can also join the tens of thousands of other smart people and subscribe to our free weekly newsletter at importantnotimportant.com. Mm-hmm. This week's episode is talking about my wife's least favorite thing. And that's not a meta way of saying this episode's about me. Uh, nope. We're talking about oh, mosquitoes. Eaters. Just the worst. I hate them. Uh, our guest, Dr. Natalie Kofler. And mm-hmm. boy, does she put up with a lot in this conversation. Yeah. I mean, I feel like that's like the baseline for anybody who Everybody, talks with yeah. us, but this was a good one. Uh, I mean, for us. She, <laughs> she's probably out in nature disconnecting from everything yeah. at this point. Um, in all seriousness, uh, seriousness, as is usual, Brian, with just about, I mean, every one of the women we've had the actual privilege to talk with, yep. I am so thankful for the conversation. I'm so glad that she will one day, hopefully sooner rather than later, uh, be co, was it president, empress, mm-hmm. whatever the thing is, uh, forever leader uh, with all the rest of them, because uh, Dr. Kofler's level of deep technical understanding of things I couldn't even begin to comprehend. At one point, she had to take a deep breath before she explained something to us because you could tell in her head, she was like, these idiots, there's no chance. At one point. She's like, can I draw them a picture or something? (laughs) Yeah, right, at one point. (laughs) Anyways, uh, but she pairs it with so much compassion and uh, nuance. It is um, something to behold. It's impressive. Yeah, that's like the whole problem, I think, is the people that don't have that and don't do that. Yeah, it's uh, but uh, she leads by example. So if you're out there, take notes, kids. This is a good one. This is a really good one. Plus, she's a cat lover. Up, oh, time to go. Let's go All talk right. to Natalie. All right. Our guest today is Dr. Natalie Kofler, and together we're going to discuss uh, mosquitoes have apparently killed half of everyone who've ever lived. Insane. Uh, should we make them go away forever? Uh, Dr. Kofler, welcome. Thanks. Thanks for having me. For sure. We are. Thanks for sticking with us five minutes into (laughs) making fun of each other. Are we recording? Did you say we're recording? Mm -hmm, Okay. mm -hmm. We're very happy to have you. This is a personally a super interesting topic to me. So I'm very excited to talk about it. it, Um, Why is it so personally interesting? Are you? I just. Dabbling in CRISPR? No, I just. CRISPR is (laughs) amazing and I hate mosquitoes and I can't believe that they've killed half. It's just the the facts are just. But you kind of can believe it when you think. Anyways, okay. Um, Can I I make a clarifying point before we begin? Right right after that. (laughs) I think it is important to remember that the mosquitoes themselves are not killing anyone. Right. It's the viruses and parasites that they carry. So let's just put that out yeah. there up front and center. Sorry, that, that was clear on that. Yeah, yeah. Way to go, Brian. I know oh, they're not a very charismatic species, but we do have to, you know, <laughs> remember their needs. It is true. They're indirectly murdering. Everybody everyone. brings up yes. um, indirectly largest yeah. mass murders of all time. Please exactly. continue, Brian. Um, do, by the way, should I? Well, can I call you doctor? Or what would you like to be referred to this whole conversation? You can call me Natalie. Natalie's please. okay. Okay. 
Yeah. Um, yeah. Natalie, if you could get us going by letting everybody know um, just sort of who you are and, and what you're up to. Yeah. So I, uh, I founded and direct a initiative called Editing Nature. And its goal is to really think about how to steer uh, genetic technologies and their applications in the environment responsibly and ethically um, with also a really large lens of, of justice. And I am a molecular biologist by training, so I, I get the science, but now I really work outside the lab and, again, thinking more about the ethical implications of these new, very transformative genetic technologies. Wow. So awesome. Wow. It, was, it just wasn't enough, was it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was getting a little. That's never yeah. enough. Um, <laughs> uh, that sounds awesome. Okay, so thank you, and and again, welcome, and thank you for being here. Um, uh, quick reminder to everyone, and and just so that you know, uh, our goal here is to provide some context uh, for our our topic today, uh, and then we'll dig into some um, action oriented, specifically action oriented questions that get to uh, the heart of why we should all give a shit about you and what you do, and what we can all uh, do about it. Sound good? Sounds great. Awesome. Uh, so Natalie, I, I know you said you cheated a little bit and did some research, which again, she's still here. That's really just shocking at this point. But we'd like to start with one important question that we ask everybody, set the tone a little bit. Instead of saying, tell us your life story, uh, Natalie, we like to ask, why are you vital to the survival of the species? <laughs> I like how oh, every other thing she says, she just cackles at us. <laughs> Not the first time so, we've been laughing. So, so I want just you to, to be bold, be yeah. honest. Okay. Oh, I should I clarify. Think... I mean human species, not mosquitoes. Yeah. We'll get to the survival oh, no, I, then goes, those like, guys. I would like to do a caveat there, like include a caveat where I I really think why I may be vital to both human and non-human species uh -huh. on this planet is I'm really trying to integrate which tend to be separate worlds. So thinking about how can we feel deep connection and kinship with other humans and other non-human species, while also think really seriously about how technologies could be used to create a more healthy future for all of us who share this planet. And so a friend of mine uses the term edge walker, which I think resonates, which is edge. really trying to be in the middle and, and create common language um, between what are often separate conversations, i.e. science versus ethics or the environment versus humans and trying to create the middle ground that allows us to come up with more effective solutions. Wow. Did you just literally come up with that? That was a good answer. <laughs> Thanks, guys. <laughs> good Lord. Wow. I'm speaking from my heart. <laughs> no, that was incredible. I'm just, I, I didn't bring tissues today. It's a whole thing. <laughs> Um, wow, that was awesome. Um, so further question then, because it does seem like, again, you're speaking from your heart to a, a fairly impromptu, ridiculous question. It's It seems as if, and, and because of the pivot you made uh, from the, or I guess ad adapting to bringing on more of the ethical side onto your technical knowledge and work, um, it seems like your your moral code is is fairly ingrained in your work and and is clearly setting the tone for discussions that could honestly lead to paradigm shifts in society and humanity and things like that so i'm i'm curious uh is, is there a specific relationship you can point to that was sort of a catalyst to get you to where you are today i guess 
professionally, but also sort of philosophically, like what, what made you, you, what made you go this way? Oh gosh. Well, I think one really sort of leading principle of mine is, and something I didn't actually realize I was so impassioned about until maybe the last few years is issues of justice. Mm-hmm. And when I look back, it's like I can't watch movies that that are depicting huge, you know, injustices. I'm really sensitive to seeing serious injustice, and I think so. That's been sort of a guiding principle of mine that I think really leads my work and how I move through the world. I'm not, to be honest, I'm not entirely sure where it came from. It feels like it's just been in me, maybe a past life, who knows? Mm-hmm. But another more really informative relationship for me is is my relationship with with nature, non-human nature. And I think, you know, I've spent a lot of time in the woods and by the lake growing up and throughout my whole life. And I think that's been a really important relationship for me because it's broadened, you know, my ideas of who we consider when we think about justice and equity and fairness. And really also thinking about how can we give voice to either those who haven't had a voice historically or those that don't even have voice in these sorts of issues. And so I think that's been a really, probably one of the most important relationships of my life to shape the work that I do now. Where did you grow up uh, that nature became so impactful on you? Now I'm just asking um, about your life story. So yeah, fuck it. Mm-hmm. no. <laughs> well, my life story was a little, it's a little bit zigzaggy. I was, I was born in actually Houston, Texas. Oh. Um, both of my parents, my, my father's Austrian, my mother's from Southern Illinois, and they went to the University of Houston. And that's where they had me when I was, my parents divorced when I was quite young. And when my mother married my stepdad, who is a Canadian, when I was about four, mm-hmm. and we moved to Canada when I was seven. Oh, wow. And so I really Similar grew up to Houston. In, <laughs> I grew up just outside Toronto and we had a my a family cottage that my grandparents on my stepdad's side had um had bought in the early 80s uh, about 3 hours north of of Toronto and I spent a lot of time up there in the summer. I also spent a lot of time with my grandfather who was a huge nature enthusiast and I think also as I look back after he, he's he passed recently, had a really strong sense of justice as well. And I think that also helped inform me. But a little caveat too, is that my father returned to Austria shortly after I moved to Canada. So I also spent a lot of time in Austria and in the mountains there. So oh, I've wow. had quite a few interactions with different, um, you know, areas in nature. Yeah. Interesting. I have a, I have a lot of, a lot of favorite trees all over. So. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah. I love it. One of those nerds. I'm into it. I've downloaded like 12 of the um, like the artificial intelligence. I mean, just sending my images to China clearly, like take a picture of the plant and it tells you what it is apps. Cool. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. They seem great. I'm trying to find uh, what I'm saying is I'm trying to figure out what my favorite trees actually are besides looking at them where you have knowledge of what they are. I need, I have to use an app. Well, I don't really have knowledge. I'm not really a biologist, like that hardcore of a plant biologist. I've had to, I've had to learn all their names, you know. And I think that's something that we forget as humans is that we have all these living beings around us all the time, mm-hmm. and very few of them can we we can even put name to. And yeah. so, why protect? Like, what you don't protect things that you can't name and and love, you know. So I think True. that's an important thing to remember. It does seem like that. I'm not going to say that's like the root of our problems, but it's certainly not helpful. Not helpful. Okay, so let's knock out a little context on this. I feel like 
This is one I'm going to get corrected a lot. I'm pretty excited about that. <laughs> Please jump in uh, or, or hang up, whichever no. you prefer. Um, <laughs> you can just call Brian if you'd like, whatever, whatever is easier. So just again, we, we've talked, uh, our, our people have a pretty good idea of what CRISPR is uh, somewhat. Um, but to revisit a little bit, it was um, CRISPR's, I think it was patented in 2012 and is more or less, so it's fairly new and it's more or less a way of finding a specific bit of DNA inside a cell. And then after we find it, that's where the editing comes into play. And that's, we alter that piece of DNA to, uh, to be painfully simplistic. The thing that everybody uses is it's scissors for DNA. How is that so far? That's, that's okay. It's moving in the right <laughs> direction. That, you know what? That, that's, that's about my college grades it's right there. Okay. That's okay. Um, uh, but we've adapted it to do other things. Uh, we can turn genes on and off without altering their sequence. Uh, we've been able to, uh, we've been able to edit genes in plants and animals for a long time, but, uh, it used to be super hard and super duper expensive. Is that correct? Yeah. And I think the other thing is it was really clunky. It was a clunky process, right? So when mm -hmm. we wanted to make changes to the DNA of, say, a plant or um, some sort of bacterial cell, normally shark. huge, <laughs> maybe a shark, if that's your thing, um, <laughs> huge swaths of DNA would be changed when that was happening. And, mm -hmm. and so what CRISPR is, is yes, it's more inexpensive and it's much easier to use, but it's also so much more precise and that you can literally make just a tiny change to a single base pair of the genetic code. And the base pair is the most, you know, smallest unit of the genetic code, literally to the letter. And so that that just gives a lot more precision and specificity on how you how you make alterations to to genomes. And it feels like if you're if one were to find themselves altering a genome on a nice Saturday afternoon, you would not want the process to be quote unquote clunky. Clunky. No. No. <laughs> uh, so, I, I mean, look, uh, CRISPR has been so hyped and we've learned so much and we've had setbacks and all this. Can it change the world? For sure. Uh, again, have we learned a ton and have so much more to learn? For sure. Do we have the potentials of species to make some very wrong decisions along the way? Y yes, we're humans. That's what we do. Um, but some of the bigger questions, again, like we were saying, I'm excited because this is feels like it's going to be sort of hybrid technical ethical chat is, is how do we measure right and wrong and who gets to measure right and wrong besides the scientific immediate impact um, of what we're looking at. So we have talked to if you if, if folks are interested in this and you missed it or you're new, we've talked about CRISPR uh, once before. I think it was episode 51 with Dr. Uh, Brandon Abunyu, I believe he's at Brown. Is that right, Brian? Um, I think so. Uh, we in th that we talked mostly there about his background is mathematical modeling and computational biology and disease, and using CRISPR sort of now and in the future to make those changes and, and looking at it from that perspective. Uh, but again, we did get into whether we should make those changes. Who should decide? Who does it really affect down the line? Second yep. generation, third generation. Um, and uh, I'm excited to dig into that a little more today with Dr. Kofler. Um, so the question is, is if, if mosquitoes have uh, indirectly killed many, many, <laughs> many, many, many people, it, we seem to have some superpower now. Is it time to hop into our CRISPR X-Wing fighters and strike back? Such a nerd. Look, just <laughs> let me talk. Uh -huh. um, so 
Uh, look, uh, Dr. Uh, Dr. Coughlin, Natalie, I, I'm a sort of a firm believer that uh, every sort of we look at what Facebook has has done to society, and it really feels like all these tech companies, all these startups, should have a chief ethical officer, right? Much less ones that are uh, companies that are able to edit genes and germ lines. Th- does it? Does it? Why are we having this conversation now for this one? Like, why is CRISPR? It's interesting to me. We've actually stopped to have this conversation, seeing that we have this complete inability to grasp the implications of other big decisions we make and other things we give power to. Um, mm-hmm. Right? Like we, in mm-hmm. some cases, we do grasp something like this, but even uh, in a lot of ways, most well-intentioned folks still put their head in the sand for a variety of reasons. Right? They buy oil stocks, or they or they keep driving a car, which is very complicated, right? Um, but it, it's a ridiculous analogy, but I was thinking about this last night, how relatively not relatively easy and cheap and scientifically sort of democratic it is to learn and use CRISPR versus the old methods. And I think about how easy and cheap it is to burn fossil fuels or own a gun or to smoke or cause secondhand smoke. And yet we still do a lot of those things and, and, and people avoid those conversations. They fight back against them. Why is CRISPR different? Why are we seemingly somewhat ahead of it, despite kind of what's happened in China, despite its potential power and accessibility? Well, I think one reason is that uh, the technologists that were involved in in creating it were pretty adamant about including ethical conversations very early on. And so that was, I think, a really important move, particularly by Jennifer Dwadna and her colleagues at Berkeley, um, to really elevate the ethical and societal implications. And so I think that helped set the tone for CRISPR um, and also made it sort of a more transparent space where people were invited into the conversation, perhaps more so than what we've seen in big data or or even AI. I think on another level, too, I think there's something about and this is just something I think about. I'm not. I'm not sure if this is real or not. But I think there's something about the fact that we're meddling with DNA. You know, with the very sort of building block of life. That somehow that feels like a much sort of more necessary and even easeful conversation to enter in because we're just really talking about sort of what it is to be human and how humans are going to interact in the world in a way that's a little bit maybe more grounded than when we talk about artificial intelligence that's going to sort of surpass human intelligence and things like that. That sort of out, feels like outside of ourselves when when this is very much, you know, at the core of, of every human and every being on this on this planet. Mm-hmm. What makes CRISPR also, and this is sort of the thing I, things I think a lot about too, like obviously CRISPR is really transformative in how it might implicate have implications in, in human health and, and um, changing sort of how humans are in the world. But what CRISPR is also allowed it for is the construction of what are called CRISPR-based gene drives. And that's what's allowed CRISPR to enter into the environment in new ways with people thinking about how we can use CRISPR to change wild species, non-human wild species. So I have a vague idea of what a CRISPR gene drive is, but it looks, yeah. the more I think about it, the further I go down like a Star Trek uh, perspective. <laughs> so if you uh-huh. could just correct us and tell everybody what a CRISPR yeah. gene drive is, um, we would be greatly appreciative. So it's not the most easy thing to describe, but I'm going to do my best, particularly when I don't have little, you know, charts and diagrams to yeah. help me. <laughs> but basically, um, dumb so it down as, as know, much as you need to. I, I well, I'll just make it approachable. It doesn't have to be dumber. But um, <laughs> <laughs> basically, what CRISPR is allowed for is that. 
So CRISPR, as you kind of already talked about, right? It's these. It's at its most basic level these two components. It's it's the guide RNA, which is what allows sort of the CRISPR uh, tool to know where to to change the DNA, and then there's the enzyme, normally Cas9, which makes the cut in that DNA, and then if you have a particular template, you can then add new information into the genetic sequence or change the genetic sequence, right? So that's basically how CRISPR works. If you were to release a mosquito that was CRISPR gene edited to say, reduce its fidelity to carry malaria and just release that mosquito into the wild, very quickly, that mosquito would mate with wild mosquitoes and eventually just get sort of pushed out of the population through natural selection because it, you know, only 50% of its genes would be inherited by its offspring and eventually that would dilute out. And so you wouldn't really be able to have a very large impact on a wild population. So a CRISPR, a, a mosquito that expresses a CRISPR gene drive expresses the gene edit you want, like maybe the inability to, to transmit malaria parasite, right. as well as the guide RNA, the Cas9, and all the templates that you need to make that very same change in any of its offspring. I mean, so that, that sounds amazing. They, it's insane, right? So they yes. go and they meet, they go mate with a wild mosquito. And then of course, like if they didn't have that gene drive, the the children of that of that mating, offspring of that mating is the more appropriate term, I guess, when we talk about mosquitoes, would only have half of them would only have the gene edit it. But basically what the gene drive does is it then makes that gene edit in any of the wild genes that the offspring inherit. So that hundred percent of the offspring have the gene edit and they have it in both sets of their of their genes, because as we know, everything has two copies of every gene. And so in that way, when you release a gene drive mosquito into the wild, you can then spread that gene edit through a population really quickly and pretty, pretty sort of broadly. And particularly because mosquitoes have a reproduction uh, cycle of like five weeks. So, you know, they're having babies and dying and living every five weeks. And basically you can like push that through super fast because you know, they reproduce so quickly and their lives are so short. And so that's been a, that's like the real game changer because that now means that as humans, we can impact, you know, wild species in, in a very different way than we have in the past. So that's really compelling because I guess in, in all of my talking about this and maybe we, I figured this out with when we were talking to Dr. Abunia, but I didn't realize that the, the turnaround was, was so quick there. Well, it depends on the on the reproductive cycle of the of, of the species right, but in I mean, question, like with mosquitoes right? and I mean, you know, yeah. I, I can see how. Yeah, I talk to my children all the time about you know everything has its lifetime. Animals, plants, and this. So I just didn't realize mm-hmm. the mosquitoes was so quick. Which yeah, so shit over and, and over also, a year. Like, yeah, and also oddly, we don't really know why, but mosquitoes seem to be really easy to gene edit and really easy to like use gene drives in, other than as compared wow. to like other insects. So. Uh, they're kind of the low-hanging fruit in this case. So are we do- um, are we doing this? Is this being implemented? <laughs> oh yeah, this is like full-on happening. Wow. Um, so basically, the the Gates Foundation is the primary backer of this organization called Target Malaria. Yeah, and they have developed uh, gene drive mosquitoes using CRISPR that can push through sort of a, a gene that causes the le- causes basically lethality or infertility so that it can suppress the population of mosquitoes so that then you can sort of just like, you just basically, the offspring don't live and you eventually just like can get rid of the populations in the wild. And so they have those mosquitoes in labs where they can basically suppress an entire lab 
uh, population of mosquitoes in as little as, I think, 11 generations. And now they're moving to have more kind of contained trials, which are like these, they have this whole facility in Italy, which sort of recreates the ecosystems that they intend to release in. And so they're doing trials there to see how they work in that setting. So they have yet to be released into the wild, but the technology is ready. And so I think that's really important for people to be aware of because we really have a pretty small window of time where we can really think about how to do this ethically and whether we are going to do it. Mm-hmm. But, but you know, we get a lot of pushback in, in this space, particularly from sort of some really um, certain environmental groups about being like, don't use the technology at all. And unfortunately, the cat's out of the bag, so to speak. I mean, the technology is there. It's more of a question of, of how we're going to choose to use it. Right. So that's where I want to dig in now. And, and just so everybody understands, again, a quick little context on on mosquitoes because like you said mosquitoes are not the killers they're they're the, they're the messengers so we're, yeah. we're we are quite literally killing the messenger um oh, so that can't the, be right you like that like a oh, gosh. rule that we're never <laughs> supposed to do i know uh. it seems like uh, right it seems like that's the beginning of the disaster or that's right. like brian that's like <laughs> yeah. your jeff goldblum quote from jurassic park that's the rule we weren't supposed to <laughs> yeah. break um so right there, there has been this talk recently right we have this whether it's through bed nets or or mosquitoes or, or, or gene drives, like we have this chance to beat out malaria because, like you said, the technology is there. To, to grossly simplify it, from my understanding, is a lot of it just comes down to like how and funding and logistics. But m- mosquitoes aren't just malaria. Malaria, malaria still kills. I, I think it's like half a million people a year. Um, but depending on your region, and again, it's getting hotter everywhere. We're talking. Uh, Z- Zika or Zika, uh, dengue, yellow fever, uh, West Nile. I mean, I mean, the list of stuff goes on and on. So I understand why people are saying like, we need to do this now. But I know that you, uh, Natalie, think about this stuff all the way down the stack per se. That is from like international treaties down to how it affects families and specific localities. So why shouldn't we do this? What 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 are the arguments against it, and and what holds water and what doesn't? I, I this is what we mm-hmm. always want to do is to really, no, these are are, are look some of our listeners going to turn to scientists. We got a lot of awesome young people in high school and college and stuff, and some of them already are scientists. But a lot of our listeners are Congress people and 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 business leaders or just you know regular nerds texting and driving. But I want to give them the fuller context of not to say both sides because that's we can't say that right now um but a more well-rounded understanding of of why we need to take a step back and think about this thing so like why shouldn't we do for instance this with mosquitoes i mean i think the the leading argument right now is just one main reason people would say not to is that there's just still a lot of uncertainty on how this would work and so and so I think that's something that does deserve a lot of attention. And, and when we mean uncertainty, I, I'm talking about all sorts of levels. So even at the genetic level, it's still unsure about how a gene drive would work uh, in wild populations. There could be natural resistance that occurs in certain mosquitoes so that the technology doesn't even work as, as effectively as it should. It could somehow create sort of strange mutations that are unintended. It could create evolutionary pressures that could force malarial parasites to evolve to be carried by a different 
mosquito vector, because as I should also note that there's many different species of mosquitoes. So the mosquito that carries malaria is a different mosquito species that carries dengue, for example. Mm. And okay. so this that's something to be, that you know, when people talk about getting rid of all mosquitoes, that's definitely not what's happening. It's about getting rid of one of, I think, almost 1,300 species of mosquitoes Whoa. in the world. So okay. yeah, <laughs> let's Jeez. just be clear there. Yeah. So, but, so what could happen though, is if you get rid of sort of one of the main characters of malaria, our carriers of malaria, you could have another mosquito or another insect step in to carry the malarial parasite that might be more difficult to control. Um, you know, and so there's all of these different levels of uncertainty. There's also huge uncertainty of the ecosystems that, that we'd be dealing with. So, you know, I really like to think about this sometimes when, if you think about just the trillions and trillions of dollars and energy and intellect that's been put into just trying to understand the human body and disease and how little we still know. Like we know nothing when it comes to these ecosystem dynamics and what mm-hmm. happens when you remove, specifically remove a species or you introduce some sort of genetically altered species and how that's going to impact food webs and all sorts of different things that we rely on from these ecosystems. Um, like a Tyrannosaurus that really- Rex, for example. <laughs> Could be detrimental. But, um, and so I think that's sort of the largest, what, you know, one of the most sort of founded, I think, founded arguments right now is just how little we know. And we're dealing with a lot of black boxes and sort of the question of, of weighing those risks and benefits. Because, like you said, nearly 500,000 people die every year of malaria, most of whom are children under the age of five. It is a causes a huge amount of suffering. Mm-hmm. We don't have, we don't have the, we're not, we're not able. I mean, there's possi- we could, but there isn't possibility right now based on the way our systems are designed within this world to give treatment to everyone that suffers from malaria. Insecticide resistance of mosquitoes is on the rise. We're even seeing resistance of, of malarial infection to, to treatments. And so that is why this, there is strong argument you know, to use this technology as a way to reduce considerable amount of human suffering. So that's interesting. So I didn't... I mean, it doesn't fucking surprise me because it's the way everything is going, but it almost seems like besides the mass amount of suffering and, and death, it seems like there's almost sort of a newer ticking clock there with some of the resistance that's going on. So it's almost a question of like, not only do we do this, but hey, we should probably do this soon. Am I understanding that right? Yeah, it's a it's a balance, right? Because of course, every year that you wait, another half a million people are going to die right. if, it, if it works the way it's supposed to. Let's just be sure. clear there, right? You know, so there is that sort of time impetus. But then at the same time, there's also really reasonable call, calls for being more precautionary in how we move forward with this because there is so much we don't know. And, you know, the last thing you want to do is start creating more harm than good by releasing this technology. And we know historically that's that's always a possibility. Right. And so... I mean, you're kind of getting to the crux of it. And it's really where I stay all the time where it's like this technology, I really feel like this technology is so amazing and it could create just such amazing solution to some of our most pressing, you know, challenges, but it also scares the shit out of me Mm -hmm, and it should, you know, and, and so we're really, it's really kind of, um, it's creating actually a really in my in my mind, an amazing opportunity because it's really forcing us to hold the mirror up to ourselves and think about how we're going to make responsible decisions. And I think more importantly, who gets who gets to make those choices? And that's why the environment's a unique space because these are shared environments, right? This isn't one patient getting to decide whether or not they want to use CRISPR to treat their disease. This is releasing wild spe- organisms into the wild that affect everybody within that environment. And so 
in that way, it, it demands a higher level of attention to, to justice and who gets to make those choices. And it cannot be made by a few technology developers or a few government officials. That's just, quite frankly, unfair. Sure. Uh, right. I mean, uh, to, to be clear, our, our, our ethos here is despite who you're talking to and because of who you're talking to is that like white guys need to stop making decisions altogether. <laughs> like it's been enough. It didn't work that great, <laughs> but I guess that's where it's different, right? Is we're not, we're not using Chris to talk about, to sort of ease our way into, uh, to the quite broad variety of applications here that Chris could potentially work on, but we're not talking about using uh, one specific instance of CRISPR to to take a gene for, this is not how it works, a gene for malaria out of one child. We're talking about, like you said, a, a, gene, a gene drive, sort of how the discussion between do we use CRISPR to, to fix someone who has a disease or do we put it into the germline and, and we, we get rid of that disease, this genetic disease. And that's, it seems like where people are thankfully slowing down and going, well, well, well hold, hold, hold on. Like, sure, mm -hmm. in one sentence, that sounds great. However, here are the 62 cascading number of issues that come from that. Yeah. The theoretically, possibly, technically. Yeah, it's really wonderful mm -hmm. to hear you uh, like just say that argument out loud because lead going into this, you hear, or someone like me here is like, oh, we can, uh, we can kill these mosquitoes. And I'm like, yes, kill those mosquitoes. I hate <laughs> them. And really, it's just so much bigger than that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I think that's what's been uh, that's what's alarming to me, and something that I'm really trying to 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 push back on is we're just slipping. The conversation is really quick, can really easily quickly slip into this either or. Mm -hmm. So, and we're seeing this on the on the global scale too, where it's like, well, if you're not if you're not for this technology, it means you're pro like 500,000 people dying every year. <laughs> <Right>. Or <laughs> right. if oh, you're God. for this technology, uh. like don't really care about the environment, you know. And it's sort of like. Yeah. Just shut the fuck up and we can hold no we can hold both at the same time like right. compassion is infinite you can be compassionate towards the environment and humans at the same time and there must i know there are ways that if we approach it in that with from that standpoint we can come up with a way to use this technology that is to the benefit of both humans and non-humans and to to a way in a way that is just and safe and responsible to create, you know, a vision of the future that we all can kind of sign on for. But it's a it's a hard it's a hard territory to protect um, because the conversation is very quickly again polarizing into this sort of either or, yeah. and um, and that to me is actually the scariest thing that can happen. Hey guys, it's Quinn. If you're listening to this, you obviously like podcasts, and you probably like music too. On Spotify, you can listen to all of that in one place for free. You don't even need a premium account. On Spotify, you can follow your favorite podcasts so you never miss an episode. You can download episodes to listen to offline, wherever you might be. And you can easily share what you're listening to with your friends via Spotify's integrations with social platforms like Instagram. Spotify has a huge catalog of podcasts on every topic, including the one you're listening to right now. You can just search for Important Not Important on the Spotify app or browse podcasts in the Your Library tab. Very convenient. And of course, you can follow us so you never miss an episode of Important Not Important. Uh, Spotify is the world's leading music streaming service, and now it can be your go-to for podcasts, too. So, are you a Trekkie, Natalie? 
Why does it always have it always? I hope this doesn't point you disappoint you, but like no, good. It's fine. Great. It's it's fine. You know what? Thank you. I hope you do enjoy your side podcast. Whatever the fuck you want to talk about. Cats. It's gonna be cats. It's great, great. I cannot wait to not be involved in that one. So you may or may not have heard, and don't feel free like you're not gonna disappoint me either. But there's this sort of main thing that is, you know, the best Star Trek comes down to like really philosophical questions, right? Like Mm. should not what are we going to do here? But, but um, what happens when we do what we are thinking of doing here and why, and who does it affect? And the main one uh, comes down to a lot of times is this thing they have called the prime directive, which is sort of the opposite of this, which is essentially like, look, turns out there's all these other planets. I mean, it's like, you know, a thousand or 2000 years from now, there's all these other planets and species. Prime directive is essentially it prohibits members of Starfleet uh, from interfering (laughs) with the natural development of other civilizations. <laughs> you so guys sorry. suck. <laughs> when he said Starfleet, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Okay, uh, I mean, I just wanted to say, like, these are really serious issues, but we can talk about Starfleet. No, if that no, makes I'm trying to make, I'm trying to make a it. really long <laughs> metaphor, you guys. Yeah, I'm sorry, I am sorry, I'm serious. But it really, no, but it there, there, it always comes down to this question because there's, it, you were talking about how it's black and white, right? And there's always much more hawkish people in Star Trek mm-hmm. who are like, wait a minute. Why wouldn't we interfere? Why the fuck should these people suffer through all the wrong decisions that humans made or they're about mm-hmm. to blow themselves up or they have a disease? We can fix it in 10 seconds. Why should we go do it? And there's other people going like, yeah, well, there's other implications. They don't learn from their mistakes. Right. They do this. They, they're not ready for the technology, yada, yada. And, and I, I always have thought about that from the, and I hope that sort of grounded me. Clearly, you guys don't care uh, in, the, in the sense of like, like you said, we can hold more than black or white in our minds. And we need, with, yeah. the, with a pace of advancement, not just of technology, but also with what's happening with the environment, we have to hold more than black and white in our heads yeah. or we're just not suited to, to, to deal with any of these issues. I'm done with Star yeah, Trek. We can talk about something Thank else. you, though. That, that was helpful. You're um, welcome. <laughs> But what I, I think to add on to that and something that I've sort of become more aware of is both of those, like both the hardcore pro and the hardcore anti folks, both are really coming from positions of privilege. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. I think that's also important to remember that like it is a privileged place to be like, we don't need to use this technology because I don't have you know children dying of malaria every year and it's not impacting my communities. And so I can be all like pro-environment and not think about the human yeah. suffering that's occurring. And then on the other hand, it's like if you're like a hardcore pro-tech person, it's like the world's worked really well for you. You've been able to steer the the steer the course of technology or people that look and act like you have been able to steer the course of technology for centuries. So like, why would you want to listen to anybody else or change what that system looks like? Right. And so both are not effective. And the real question is, how do we create this middle space, you know, that is humble and is able to hear other points of views and really stick to that gray zone to really steer this, this technology in the right direction. And and that's, that's not only like, you know, specific to, CRISPR-based gene drives. I think that's obviously an issue we're seeing across the board in all sorts of different new emerging technologies and other places in society. But I, th- I really think that that's where I start to really push back on is that 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 those arguments are privileged arguments, and until people realize that, they're not going to change their tune. I don't think. Yeah, that's a that's a, a perfect um, segue r- regarding privilege because we you know sometimes we have these conversations uh, and. And, you know, we, I want to make sure that I stop and remind uh, our listeners that this, this affects you too. It's not like mm-hmm. some, you know, specifically 
uh, developing world problem, though malaria obviously feeds primarily on those populations, but it's, it's everybody, you know, we're, it's all connected. Um, and before we get to specific actions, uh, I want to talk, you know, the philosophy of engagement, um, besides mm-hmm. just like general altruism, which is of course commendable. Why should, uh, our U S based listeners care about and, and even further get involved in, in these discussions. And I guess to go with what you were saying, like, but also get informed, but be willing and ready to take a step back because a lot of the times they aren't about you and you, it is not your job to decide. So there's several, I think there's several reasons of why engagement is so important. One is there's actually just the practical, practical side of this thing. These are really complex decisions. They are going to require significant amounts of different kinds of expertise, both traditional kinds of expertise as well as sort of more uh, grassroots levels of expertise. And so for that very reason, the more the more lenses we can shine on this issue, the smaller the blind spots will become. So there's just that practical reason of why there needs to be engagement of all sorts of different folks. There's also another sort of practical slash sort of ethical reason of, of engagement. And that's because Whenever we're faced with huge degrees of uncertainty, which is what these gene drives are 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 presenting to us, we engage our value systems to like fulfill the decision making process. So, how we feel about technology, what kind of ris- levels of risks we're willing to take, how we feel about nature, whether humans should be interfering, whether humans should stay apart from nature, those sorts of value bases are going to strongly inform decision making. There's sociology data that shows that, for example, in this country, white men tend to have the highest risk tolerance over women and other, over men of color. And so if you have a bunch of white men deciding how technology should be used, they're going to pro- likely take higher risks with how they use that technology. And so there's this real need in that way to have as many voices at, at the table. And then thirdly, just to, to reiterate, there's a, there's a justice ecu- argument for this. Yes, we've been talking about malaria bearing mosquitoes that might be eliminated in sub-Saharan Africa, but there's also been discussions of releasing genetically engineered mosquitoes into the Florida Keys to reduce Zika virus. So like this is also a domestic issue and it's and it's only approaching and becoming larger. There's discussions of using gene drives in agriculture to eliminate certain agricultural pests, mm-hmm. you know. The Midwest would probably be one of the first places that those oh, yeah. might be trialed. And so there is definitely domestic uh, need of involvement within the U.S. In, in these topics, and so again, because there's there's a release into a shared environment, there's a justice issue that people have a right to that process, and the only way that you can really engage in that process is to, to inform yourselves and try and enter into into conversation. Yeah, <clears throat> I mean, if 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 now isn't really just a shining moment of of white guys' larger risk tolerance. <laughs> and and failure to grasp the implications of of that, um, I I don't know. I mean, it's pretty crystal pretty crystal clear mm-hmm. at this point. But mm-hmm. I, so to take a quick step before we do get to the action stuff, again, like you you just started to hint at, and I feel like we could do a, a longer discussion. Clearly, we should do do more of these. There are a number of other things that people are are eager to and are are pre- preparing to use. CRISPR on, uh, you know, it seemed like for a minute, every other headline from new scientist whom I love was like, CRISPR <laughs> can do this. We can also oh, do yeah. this. We can also do this. Mm-hmm. Wait, it might cause cancer. Wait, maybe it's okay. <laughs> um, with everything we've learned so far, what other 
issues, diseases, situations? Are we actually uh, not like, what are the things we can do? What are we actually working on? What have, what are the things we've actually decided to do? Well, there's one thing that's been sort of developing in the agricultural space is using CRISPR in livestock. And so, for example, Mm. there's been cattle that have been CRISPR gene edited so that they don't have horns. And what that allows for is that, I guess, you know, generally cattle have to be dehorned so that they don't cause damage to other cattle when they're when they're farmed in high density. And so this would allow for like, which is a painful process, as you can imagine, this would allow to not have to dehorn cattle. So they kind of use this you know, use a, you know, a reduction of suffering argument. Another place that CRISPR is being um, explored is for environmental conservation. And I think that's an important thing to remember that there could be really also special ways that CRISPR could be used to help protect our our planet. And one is that um, there is some work being done to start exploring using CRISPR to gene edit coral species, for example, so that they could withstand raising sea temperatures and ocean acidification. that would be amazing. There's also work yeah, being wow. done. To be, right. Yeah. I mean, and, and that's and that's where the arguments get really interesting because we, you know, not to be not to play the alarmist because I really try not to, but we could be in a situation that if we don't use something like that, we have to be okay with losing all coral. You know, like that could be uh, one way to to protect things. And so again, that's why we really need to think about, you know, not only the risks of these technologies, but but the benefits and, and what the risk might be by not using it, you know, and that's, it could be like just as risky not to maybe gets a little black and white at that point, like maybe not there yet, but I mean, with the way corals are going, we just had an amazing conversation with uh, Dr. Kim Cobb about that. Yeah. Which is like, we just might lose them, mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. is mm-hmm. like you said, so, we're yeah. gonna, not necessarily, we have to be okay with, but we have to decide like, that's what we're, st- it's, right. it's sort of like, you know, some of the discussions of, what cities are we ready to, you know, lose. I hate to use the word abandon, but that's the way, like New Orleans mm-hmm. isn't going great, you know, and they don't mm-hmm. have the money to try some of the crazy ambitious things that New York is talking about doing. And, um, you know, we have to at some point have mm-hmm. a real a, a big boy discussion about this. Yeah. But then, of course, the other discussion that comes up, at least at the global scale, too, is that, you know, Again, this issue of not wanting the technology to be a band-aid solution or, mm-hmm. you know, this idea of a silver bullet when we have system, like systems that aren't working, right? And so there's, I think, again, this isn't black or white. We might need to use band-aids to cease the, you know, stop the bleeding while we still try to reform the systems that need to be improved, right? Sure. Yeah, sure. Mm-hmm. I mean, people talk about, you know, uh, like uh, sucking carbon out of the air is that they're like, oh, if we do that, then people just keep getting to burn. It's like, we got to no. do, we have to do all of the fucking all things. The things. Yeah. All the fucking all the things. things. Uh, yeah. It's yeah. so far beyond that at this point, man. Yeah. <laughs> Natalie, where do you uh, and, um, and your like minded colleagues and editing nature, uh, where do you run into your biggest obstacles um, or frustrations? I have to say my biggest frustrations have been uh, when I've come up against certain environmental groups in that I'm seeing a trend where at least at sort of the international level where a very small number of people that represent certain Western-based environmental groups have a very outspoken voice. They claim to speak for what they call vulnerable communities who are now trying to have their own voice in these discussions and it doesn't always align. And I've noticed a lot of spread of misinformation and the, and the silencing 
of voices. And I've actually found that the most challenging hmm. experience to deal with. Interesting. Is that pretty pervasive? I'm being very no, I noticed that was, that was incredibly tactful. Yeah. Well done. Um, it's pretty pervasive at like the UN treaty level where we're, uh, you know, have, you have these times where you have international meetings where people are coming together to try to negotiate um, protocols on how to how these technologies should be overseen. And that in those cases, you see certain environmental groups having a really dominant presence and a very disruptive presence in that they're not interested in having any conversation. And because of that, they use a lot of tactics to shut it down. And again, that scares the shit out of me because what we need to be doing right now is talking about this stuff. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. Interesting. Mm-hmm. I've had, I've had my pieces, like I, you know, wrote essays that have been denied publication because certain editors didn't agree with like the environmental <laughs> ethic I was using or that I was too pro technology. And so, I mean, it's, Jeez. it's annoying. Yeah. It's annoying. I, annoying is yeah. a very kind that, way yeah. of putting that. <laughs> Um, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, and upsetting, really upsetting. Sure, <laughs> this is we we got the explicit tag. You can throw whatever f bombs you want at it here. Um, so like like we mentioned uh, at the beginning, Natalie, our goal uh, is to provide uh, specific action uh, steps that our listeners can take to support your mission um, uh, with their voice, their vote, and their dollar. So let's get into that uh, before we let you go. Uh, let's start with their voice. What are the big, actionable, and specific questions that we should all be asking of uh, of our representatives? Well, firstly, I think we need to be asking our representatives to give these technologies a little bit more attention. I think what I've noticed is it seems like the artificial intelligence seems to get a lot of attention at the governing, like governance levels, both yeah. at the international level as well as domestically. And I think that these technologies, particularly looking at releasing gene-edited organisms into the wild, are are equally, if not more so, more transformative. And not only that, are it's happening now. You know, there, this is, has a real urgency. And so I think we really need to be pushing our representatives to educate themselves um, on these technologies. I think we also need to be pushing our representatives to try and... Uh, kind of promote the U.S. of being a larger player in these discussions. So, for example, at the U.N. level, there's the Convention of Biological Diversity, which oversees sort of regulation and and protocols on how to use genetic technologies safely in the environment. And the U.S. is not a treaty to that, to that con- a party to that convention, um, meaning they're there, but they can't actually participate in negotiations. And so <sighs> that's alarming. And I think it's, it's again, um, and that's been, that's, this is, this has been for some years now, this isn't a new, new event. Um, but, but I think we need to really be pushing, um, our representatives to be more engaged in, in helping to shape these, these discussions. And then how, and then next up would be vote. How can we, uh, how can we help support you and what you do with our vote? I mean, I think what, what I do is, Obviously, I'm focusing on these technologies because I think they're very transformative and important, and there needs to be balanced discussion on how we need to move forward. But I feel like on a more meta level, I really am impassioned about ensuring that that sort of gray middle zone is protected, where we can take time to see things from both sides and really be be compassionate for other viewpoints and trying to have humility 
to, to hear and see those viewpoints clearly. And so on a really sort of, you know, you know, not a very clear way of saying this, but like, I think we need to really expect those things out of our, out of our representatives and who we vote for. Hell yeah. And, and it's sort of like, we just see the same patterns occurring in all sorts of places. And we're seeing it in this technology. We're seeing it obviously in the democratic processes of this nation and really sort of, of really being open about, about being compassionate and, and humble in how we approach these uncertainties and who we represent to who we vote to represent ourselves um, in those, in those situations. Seems like science fiction. I mean, you guys make fun of my Star Trek, but you're over here talking about nuance and respecting compassion. Uh-huh. I, I don't know. Someone's got to say it. Yeah. But, um, you know, does. and I, I think that's, a lot, there's definitely this like rising, I mean, there's a rising energy around those ideas. I, I really, I, I really feel, I can feel it. And I think um, that's what helps me stay hopeful in moving yeah. forward. But I think the other issue, right, is like when you're asking how people can be active and vote in in regards to this technology, I mean, it's still it's still pretty new. So it's really about kind of talking about foundational ways that we can protect those processes. I think we can also be really vocal about ensuring that regulatory processes um, in this country, for example, um, really carve out and protect space for public engagement, that they hear Mm -hmm. what the public thinks, that they can introduce sort of non-science um, inputs into how do they make decisions. You know, this is, this, this is goes so beyond a sort of the technical details. We need to be able to incorporate ethical, uh, ethical frameworks into our regulatory processes. We need to incorporate different value systems and viewpoints into regulations so that, so that we can really be more transparent because at the end of the day, there's still values being played out in regulatory processes. It's just that they're a pretty narrow set of values by the people who are in positions of power. And so sure. how do we incorporate, you know, the values of a more broad, wide, wide public? And I think that's where people can be active and trying to call for sort of more open, transparent and engaged regulatory processes. I think this is one of the things that, and again, no no, no people or segments or populations or, or generations are, are perfect. But what is, at least in, in the case of, say, you know, climate change and clean energy is so inspiring about, you know, sort of the lower end of millennials and Generation Z is, is they're not just like, you know, some white people who included some Hispanic people and a few African-Americans. I mean, the, the, the variety of that generation and the inclusiveness of that generation on, uh, again, not perfect, but on such a wide strata of, of, of viewpoints and perspectives and concerns and needs uh, is, is uh, inspiring and hopeful that you, you hope that, and again, you know, people change and things, things grow more complicated, but uh, that, that when hopefully people like that do, do get into power or get even old enough just to be considered to be in power, that that kind of consideration will change um, because that has been their mo from from early on at least yeah i I hope that's where i pin a lot of it these days i I do too and that's why i see i sort of see my role because i'm a bit older than that is really about what can i do in the time that i have to at least help sort of prepare the way for this these generations to come that are going to be thinking about things in a much more inclusive diverse way Mm -hmm. what can i do in the systems to kind of you know prep the floor for them to, to take the floor. And so that's sort of, I think, actually really what, what the goal is here. 
Awesome. Is there anywhere specific, any awesome organizations, uh, nonprofits, things like that, where, where folks can, can be fiscally supportive of any sort? Editing Nature, perhaps? Yeah. yeah. So, edit, I mean, Editing Nature is my organization. I need to be clear, it's at this point pretty much a one-woman show with some <laughs> volunteers. Um, it's well, been really hard. You're among friends. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It's been hard to gain, you know, financial support just in that it's a pretty, you know, emerging issue. So oftentimes we have to convince people that this is an issue before we can even pitch our, you know, what our solution is. Mm. But, but the idea really is to build it into a, a think and do tank where I, you know, we have the capacity to bring in really diverse expertise and worldviews to really think about how to steer this technology responsibly. And so that's the goal. And I invite um, any interested listeners to visit our website at www.editingnature.org. My contact info is there too. So I welcome any uh, feedback and ways of partnering um, to really try and and to create more momentum for what I think is a really important uh, issue. Awesome. All right. So uh, we've obviously kept you for quite some time and we very much appreciate it. Thank mm-hmm, you for mm-hmm. being here. Who else should we talk to? Um, we love to ask our guests because yeah. I always imagine that you guys, all of our guests who are super smart and changing the world are like on an iMessage chat together. Yeah, you guys are all slacking <laughs> each other, right? Hanging out. Hey, what did you solve today? Ah, I, I solved this world thing. <laughs> Yeah. If there anybody that you're tight with or um, you know, some of you have a science crush well, on. Like- sure. You already spoke with one of my favorite people, being a Venkatera man. Yeah. So I'm glad you got a chance. Oh, man. So great. Yeah. I'm reading, you know, I think in my, in the particular space of environmental gene editing, it's, it's a bit tough because most people are kind of falling on one side or the other. It's hard to find the middle ground as much. But I've been calling, I've been, what am I been reading recently? I've been reading um, Alondra Nelson's book called The Social Life of DNA. Um, she's this amazing woman who's at, on faculty at Columbia University and writes a lot about sort of racial equity and and genetic technologies and genetic sequencing. So she's pretty cool. I think people should be looking into her stuff. Um, from the environmental space, a place that's been really resonant with me is these new movements around um, compassionate converse, conservation. So ideas about if we're going to think about environmental conservation, how can we do so from a place of compassion? And then one of my favorite uh, sisters from another mother is is Emma Maris. She is a fantastic writer and thinker who really is able to kind of carve out an argument of being in deep relationship and kinship with nature, but also being open to technology as a way to to solve some of our our major issues. And so she has a great some great TED talks, and she wrote a book several years ago called. called um, Rambunctious Gardens, and has many essays. And I invite people to to Google her. Cool. Awesome. Bring it home, Brian. Okay, Natalie, here's the last few questions that we ask everybody. It is just don't uh, even say it. It's called, not a lightning round. It's not a lightning It's called <laughs> Don't Call It a Lightning Round. Yeah, I'm just going to ask them quickly. Uh, uh, most I'm, of the questions are going to be about Star Trek. Get ready. No, they're just. God. Oh, no. I'm done. Uh, nah. So now you're just, now you're just <laughs> mocking me. Mock- I, I like you so much, Natalie. <sighs> Sorry. No, you're not. That's the thing. You're not sorry. <laughs> I am a little. I would never want to hurt your feelings, but I think you can oh, handle it. Uh, you can it's, handle it's it. It's fine. Oh, Brian, Brian blows in here at 9.07 every Thursday morning. Oh, he right. makes fun of my feelings. Oh, okay. Natalie, uh, when was the first time in your life when you realized you had the power of change or the power to do something meaningful? 
I think I had it in high school. Okay. And then I, I think it went away. <laughs> oh. <laughs> okay. Hit me. And then I th- and then I think it came back about three years ago when I moved out of the lab and started working on on editing nature. What happened? Um, I want to. What happened in high school, Natalie? I just in high school I was very active in in making change and helping to sort of create community. And then I think when I went to university, and then also my PhD, you know, you you dive so deep into your intellectual pursuits, and you're and you're just just squeezed into these boxes of what you're supposed to focus on. And, um, and I lost it for a little while. And that's partly why I started exploring other ideas and issues because I was feeling so unfulfilled in many ways. But now I'm back and ready for, for action. So Just in time. Just in time. <laughs> Just in time. Uh, now, and I know a lot about genetics and DNA now, so that's helpful. Yeah. Yeah, no, 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 no definitely. <laughs> Definitely. It's important that you got the facts. <laughs> Natalie, who is someone in your life that's positively impacted your work in the past six months? I mean, it's clearly not your cat who's locked outside. You can't say Captain Picard. Oh, gosh. <laughs> There's been a lot of people. That's why I'm trying to kind of think about, um, you know, I think what's been a really important impact on me is working with, with students and younger and younger people and how inspiring inspired I've been by their commitment to being inclusive and 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 just justice and how we use technologies and being so receptive to to some of the the ways we're thinking about you know creating better platforms for decision making and I think that's been probably the most important thing just because like we talked about earlier it keeps me really hopeful and dedicated uh to my work awesome answer the youth baby I, love it the youth and oh <laughs> i want to say another thing that's all sorry i'm gonna do two i know it's a lightning round but no, i'm gonna pl- throw it out there <laughs> no i mean it's fine you've already ruined it please continue <laughs> and i want to i want to plug them also i had the opportunity to attend um a workshop in new orleans a few weeks ago called the racial equity initiative and it's a two-day workshop on systemic racism in this country. Mm-hmm. And to me, that's been one of the most transformative events I've ever uh, taken part of as a, as a white woman, uh, really being transformed by the sense of privilege that I get to experience in this country. Um, and I think that that's going to be very transformative in how I approach my work and how I can consider racial equity issues in, when it comes to technology. Awesome. Yeah, well, check them out. Check them out. Uh, Doctor, what do you fee? What do you do? Sorry, what do you do when you feel overwhelmed? What's your, mm, your self care? I go outside and lean against a tree trunk. I was going to guess that, basically. Yeah, totally. I basically put my back against it and then just like lean and feel the ground. And I, I recommend it to to everyone if you if you can access some sort of tree, um, <laughs> because all of a sudden you just like. The world just doesn't feel quite so intense and you ground yourself and you realize that there's all of these amazing beings all around us um, that we forget about. And it yeah. gives you a lot of perspective. I love that. There's a, I mean, growing up in Illinois, there was uh, certainly a lot of uh, nature to go run around in and I loved it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, growing, oh, sorry. being in Canada for the past summer, there's been some other ways to relax. Uh, legally, which have been helpful too. <laughs> we're, we're, whatever works. Coming at you from California, <laughs> we yeah, exactly. loud and clear. Yeah, exactly. you get it. I'm fairly sure everything is legal here at this point. Oh, that's right. I forgot about that. 
Um, <laughs> Natalie, if you could Amazon Prime one book to Donald Trump, what book would that Ooh. be? Oh, I would. I don't know if he would be receptive, but I'd have to Amazon Prime. Do we know anything Prime. about him? Jesus. <laughs> my, 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 that's true. Maybe he'd love it. Uh, <laughs> one of the most impactful books I've ever read is this book called Braiding Sweetgrass by Robin Well. Robin Wall Kimmerer. It was a book I read while I was still in the lab and really gave me the impetus to make make change in my life. And she is a botanist at uh, State University of New York in Syracuse as well. Uh, she is of Native American heritage. And she talks a lot about integrating her science and non-scientific wisdom and how she moves through the world. And so that was very important to me. And I think maybe he'd like it. We'd, we could see. <laughs> Uh, we'll take it. Thank you. Yeah, we, we've I don't got, know we're going to get on anything, but we can. Look, look, look. We got. We, you can't go all the way down that rabbit hole. It's not a pretty place. I know. <laughs> but we've gotten some great recommendations. We'll we'll add it to the list. Right, that sounds super okay. super cool. Awesome. Uh, where can our listeners uh, follow you on the internet? Okay, so they can go to www.editingnature.org. That mm-hmm. is uh, our website. I'm in the process of developing nataliekofler.com but it's nice. not up yet but they could be checking back in a month or so and then I am on Twitter at well at at Natalie Kofler so that is another way to kind did of follow at, what I'm at I'm sorry did you write no. the word at in your <laughs> no, handle I did not. no I'm not a very sophisticated tweeter Got but it. I didn't do that it is so it's just at sign yeah <laughs> Natalie Kofler got it got it okay just checking Uh, well listen this has been a blast your cat uh cut your internet line and tried to end the conversation but you persevered (laughs) yes and you know that's that's a real win so we appreciate that today um natalie uh dr kofler thank you for your time and putting up with us um and uh, i hope you go put your back against a tree and exhale after this ridiculousness (laughs) thank you for all that you do and the deep consideration you bring to all of the things you do because uh not only uh, are we glad that you're doing it, but that you're setting an example for for other folks to do the same because we are dealing with a lot of shit and um, some of it's really cool uh, and some of it is not. And and that um, that nuance and broad perspective and the ability to take a step back is going to come in handy if we can all subscribe to it, or at least m- most of us. I'm not going to go for all of us, but you know, as many as possible. Oh, thank you for those words. It means a lot. And it was an absolute pleasure. And I actually don't feel any need to lean against the tree. I'm feeling, I'm feeling great. <laughs> well, check and see if your cat's alive. Um, <laughs> and, and thank you. And thank you for caring about this, this, this issue. I think it's really important. So it means a lot that, you know, you can amplify it. I appreciate that. Yeah, absolutely. We're it's, happy. It's a, uh, it's we're the least we can do. This was, we're, we're, we're lucky to do what we do. Um, awesome. Well, Natalie, thank you so much. Uh, enjoy, uh, champagne and, uh, we will talk to you soon. Thanks to our incredible guest today, and thanks to all of you for tuning in. We hope this episode has made your commute or awesome workout or dishwashing or fucking dog walking late at night that much more pleasant. As a reminder, please subscribe to our free email newsletter at importantnotimportant.com. It is all the news most vital to our survival as a species. And you can follow us all over the internet. You can find us on Twitter at importantnotimp. Just so weird. Also on Facebook and Instagram at Important Not Important, Pinterest and Tumblr, the same thing. So check us out, follow us, share us, like us, you know the deal. 
And please subscribe to our show wherever you listen to things like this. And if you're really fucking awesome, rate us on Apple Podcasts. Keep the lights on. Thanks. Please. <laughs> and you can find the show notes from today right in your little podcast player and at our website, importantnotimportant.com. Thanks to the very awesome Tim Blaine for our jam and music, to all of you for listening, and finally, most importantly, to our moms for making us. Have a great day. Thanks, guys. Thanks, guys.